love him. The rest of you, it's all right, it's a journey. <laughs> Grab your Bibles. Say this with me, this is my Bible. God's written living word to me. It tells me who God says I am and reveals to me what God says I have. Because it's how he thinks, I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore I am transformed. We're currently in a series on the book of Romans. Most of you know that, I'm sure. If this is your first time hearing me on this subject, I think that you will enjoy yourself this morning. I have never had such an intense week of study and preparation as the one that I've just been through for this particular message. As we begin uh, with now verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, we enter into a completely different dimension of, uh, of study and regarding a, um, an ecclesiastical subject, a, a doctrinal theological subject that has haunted the church for uh, millennium. And I, I mean literally millennium, not, not just a few days or weeks or months or past couple of years, but sincere hearts, theologians, in fact, all the way back to the church fathers have argued over the points that we're going to bring out in this passage uh, since, since the early church days, since the days of the early church. If I had a theme for this morning's message, it would be this, that no matter where you're at or how far you have fallen, God's passionate, patient, pure love pursues you until you are reconciled with him. That is the message of this morning. I want to tell you where I sit before I tell you where I stand. Again, these things that we're going to talk about this morning have been disputed by theologians and very scholarly followers of Jesus for literally thousands of years. Even the early church fathers. Jeff, that first graph, please. Uh, Diane lights out on number one. This is a chart showing the early church fathers, all the way back to, of course, Peter, Paul, and John. But you'll notice that Ignatius and Clement of Rome were early church fathers that were contemporaries of Paul and John. They had direct access to the writings of both of those men. Then you get into Justin, Irenaeus, and Polycarp. Polycarp was a direct disciple of John's. Next graph. So you have Jesus Christ, you have, again, Paul, Peter, and John, who really are the ones responsible for the New Testament and lay out uh, the, 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 the uh, largest amount of, of doctrine and theology. Of course, Paul, overwhelmingly, uh, is the one who wrote the theology of the New Testament that we have canonized for us today. But again, Clement of Rome was a direct disciple, a direct disciple of Paul, Ignatius, direct disciple of Peter, Polycarp, direct disciple of John. Then you have Arrhenius and Hippotus and Justin and, and Titan or Tatian, uh, Clement of Alexandria. These were either friends or direct disciples of early church fathers. They had access to the earliest writings. And I submit to you that if you were to study each of these men, you would find that 
there is not agreement amongst all the apostolic fathers and early church fathers on some of these things. That, that's how difficult some of this is. That, that's how varied the view sometimes on difficult passage of Scripture like we're going to talk about. Translation makes a difference. And so it behooves you to study from a variety of translations. Your attitude and willingness to study and listen to the Holy Spirit, to think critically, is absolutely essential in any study of the Bible, but especially the book of Romans. You cannot study the book of Romans. Go ahead, Diane, and bring number one back. And we'll do that a couple of times so you just... So be sensitive to that. <laughs> lights on, lights off. Wish we had a clapper. Do those things work? I know individuals who are so closed-minded, so closed-minded, they, they dare not question anything that they've been taught. They dare not question what they learned in Sunday school. They, they, they dare not question the line the common line or doctrinal line that's been given to them by a church or by a tradition, a religious tradition. That's problematic. I mean, if even the apostolic fathers and the early church fathers questioned these things, had varying degrees of, of agreement amongst themselves regarding some of these things, should, should we not at least be willing to look critically ourselves at theology and ask ourselves whether or not we are being controlled and manipulated through fear. You know what that main fear is that tries to manipulate us and control us? You better be careful, you'll, you'll be deceived. Well now, isn't that great of the Holy Spirit who has filled our lives, who the Apostle John in 1 John said, you have, you have no need that any man teach you. For the Holy Spirit that is in you teaches you of all things. Isn't that interesting? That we wouldn't have more trust and faith in the Holy Spirit to keep us on the right path. I mean, if you are single-mindedly in love with Jesus Christ and you, you hold to the absolutes of Scripture, such as Jesus is Lord, such as Jesus died for my sins, uh, things like that that are absolute, that, isn't it? Don't we believe that the Holy Spirit's big enough to keep us out of deception and lead us into truth? We need to. And because these verses that we're about to read, verses 18 through 32, through the remainder of this chapter, of Romans chapter 1, deal with the subject of God's wrath and judgment, it's almost as though some Christians enjoy the idea of the wicked getting their due. I mean, that's what they use Romans chapter 1 for. It's, obviously, it's the chapter that deals with homosexuality. And, and it's like many believers just enjoy, they sort of revel in, in that, that spirit that the wicked are going to finally and someday get judged and they're going to get their due. Don't forget you were once wicked. <laughs> you once ran with the wicked. You once were. So here's a theological baseline that I'm going to submit to you as I 
tell you where I sit before I tell you where I stand. Number one, God is love. First John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. And I submit to you, he never acts in a way contrary to the DNA of his nature. Number two, God loves the world, and Jesus did not come to judge the world. John chapter 3, verse 17. See, we learned verse 16 in Sunday school, in Bible school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And we never go on to read verse 17. And Jesus came not into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Third, God has reconciled the, reconciled the world to himself and does not count their sins against them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. And finally, as we begin, as we go now, starting with verse 18 and work our way through these scriptures that deal with God's wrath and God's judgment, I submit to you that it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. Not man's repentance that leads to God being good. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Ready? Set? Let's go. Now, to help us, if you would, Terry, to help us understand a little better how Paul approaches the subject of God's wrath and judgment, I'm going to use an illustration here. As Paul begins to deal with this subject, he deals with it in the same way that we see Google Maps zeroing in from a worldview to the street, to the building that you are in right now. You are looking at 12301 Grant Street. Isn't that amazing? Anybody recognize that parking lot? Recognize that building? We're the, we're the corner unit there. Watch this now. Now, re remember, this is how God sees the world. When, when God's dealing with the world, he, he's dealing not with just you personally. I submit to you that as we start reading verse 18, that we're dealing with a passage of Scripture that's not dealing with just you personally or the sins of your neighbor, or the sins of somebody you work with, or somebody... He is dealing with the world. He's trying to... Paul is doing his best to give us a view of, of the issue of sin and how God thinks about sin as it applies to the entire world. Thank you, Terry. And so we begin. Verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Though everything God, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. God. Verse 18 is interesting. It says, For God's 
wrath in some translations. King James is one of those. But in most of the more modern ones, it correctly translates it, but God's anger from heaven is against all sinful, wicked people. The word wrath, the reason that we need to correctly translate this and refer to it as God's anger and not God's wrath is because if you will simply look up the word wrath in the dictionary, you'll find this. A strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Retributory punishment for an offense or crime. And see, that's the picture that many people have of God. But the Greek word for anger is anger, angry displeasure. The message translation picks this up. Parents? Ever had angry displeasure with one of your children? (laughs) One, one One of the kids was waving at me. <laughs> Been the recipient of that angry displeasure. Praise the Lord. Well, let me tell you, you should be glad that your parents were not wrathful. <laughs> because, see, wrath is a vengeful anger. It has to get back. It has to punish. It's retributory punishment for an offense or a crime. I'm going to get you. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you sorry you did that. You see the difference there between an angry displeasure and a vengeful, angry wrath. Remember, God is love, and it's impossible for him to act in any way contrary to the DNA of his nature. God's anger against sin, when only viewed from a personal standpoint of punishment, will always lead us to develop a skewed, distorted view of his nature. Now consider the following very carefully. And I'm about to present you with two common meanings of this word anger. God's angry displeasure. Number one, here's the classical one. God's judgment of sin, if you choose not to believe is sure. God will judge your sin if you choose not to believe. I submit to you Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 through 8 as well as what we're reading in Romans. Paul says, imitate God therefore in everything that you do because you are as dear children. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ for he loved us and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in these things that people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now once you were full of darkness, once you, once you did these things, but now you have and are light from the Lord. 
All right, so classically, God is going to punish and judge sin. And I submit to you that that is true. God does hate sin. God does punish sin. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians that sin is to be avoided, that there is sin, and that the Christian should avoid sin, and that there is an angry displeasure of the Lord for sin, and that sin has consequences. Now, there is a second interpretation or presentation of God's anger that we need to consider this morning, and it's this. That the meaning of the word wrath, or God's anger, means a passionate reaching to express his love for us in rejecting what is wrong in our lives. How many of you as parents have experienced that displeasure where you have expired (laughs) explaining dutifully painstakingly you've given instruction you've laid out your will and your purpose only to have the child suppress that and go ahead in their willfulness their ego their selfishness and take a different direction make a different choice how many of you parents have experienced that right You explain. You dutifully, carefully lay it out for the kids. You lovingly, patiently, patiently, you you, you explain your will, your purpose, and they just suppress it. They, in their ego and selfishness, go a different direction. They make a different choice. Are you not angry? Uh, Don't you get passionate? Don't you want to reach into their life and not wrathfully curse them, damn them, judge them, punish them, but you want to pull that thing in them out? So there's this displeasure, but it's not this out-of-control, childish wrath that throws them around, hits them, pulls their hair, slaps them silly, or beats them black and blue. Some of you had parents that do that. Or maybe some of you in this room that fall into that temptation from time to time with your children, and you have to breathe deeply and count to ten or call a friend. But remember, our God is love. He's not just loving. God is love. He's incapable of doing anything that is not love. If that's true, if God's incapable of doing anything that isn't loving, I submit to you that it's very possible that what we've just read in these first couple of verses is an expression of God's angry displeasure that rather than holding us at a distance, and punitively judging us and casting us away and beating us and, right, out of control, immature anger. He reaches into our life and he will pursue us. He will passionately love us until he can reach in and try to get that thing out of our life. 
And it is often, it is very often like punishment. The writer of Hebrews addresses this in chapter 12 when he says, no punishment for the present time seems to be pleasant. (laughs) But afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness when God has to punish us. How many of your parents have experienced that in the moment of that angry displeasure, it was turmoil, it was not pleasant, you were wrestling with this issue, but afterwards there came peace. Afterwards, as the child submitted his will, there came a pleasantness. This is what God is after. The mirror translation says this, God is passionately positioned, this is verse 18, God is passionately positioned against the foolishness of those who suppress and conceal the truth of their redeemed innocence with an inferior reference to themselves. The righteousness of God that is endorsed in the heavens is in such contrast to the counterfeit earthly reference that blindsfold people in their unrighteousness. End quote. This word, anger, comes from the Greek word orge. We get our word orgy from it. Now, some of you relate to that in one way and some of you to another, but it simply means strong desire, strong reaching feeling. God, in his orge, is reaching forward. It also means excitement of the mind. God in his passion is reaching into our lives in his anger, if you will, in his love for us, and he refuses to let me go, and he pursues me, and he's after me to get out of my life the things that are displeasing. And here's the deal. These, quote, sins are not sins just because God doesn't like it. All right? (laughs) I mean, think about this, folks. He's the creator of the universe. Would God be so petty as just to make a moral list and say, here, these things, I I don't like these things, so you need to not do them. I mean, is is that really our God? Or could it be that because he loves us so much, the boundaries that he places in our life are to protect us, to be sure we receive the best he has for us, rather than being boundaries of his punitive displeasure where he's going to squash you because you've done something that displeased the wrathful God who from his mountain on high is going to stream down like hot lava and burn you to a crisp. (laughs) It's like, who, who would serve a God like that? Who, who would come to a God like that? That is pagan. Our God is love and righteousness and passion and purity. You see, the law reveals how guilty and sinful man is, while the gospel reveals how forgiven and restored to his original blueprint man is. And here's the good news. Either of these, either of these definitions of anger, the classical one or the one that I just expressed to you, 
are not an issue for the person who will simply love and surrender to God. They're only an issue for the person who rejects God's love and his grace gift called Jesus. As we continue, verses 21 through 26 deal with the universal guilt of man. Yes, Paul says, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and animals and birds and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the Creator Himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with one another. And the men, instead of having normal sex relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserve. I submit to you that judgment is self-activated. Oh, you better listen. Judgment is self-activated. Verse 21, though they knew God, isn't that interesting? Christ had not yet, a co- had not yet come. You could know God outside of Christ. Remember, we're talking about now the universal world. We're talking about the universal creation. We're talking about how God sees the world as we step back from 12301 Grant Street and Cathedral of Praise and your chair and your life and the things you're doing wrong. And we see that God is talking now about something even much bigger than that. What I say? Cathedral of Praise? Thank you, Jesus. Now, watch what the failure was. It says, verse 21, our first failure was they would not worship him. And then verse 25 tells us failure number two. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. Verse 26, first part. This is why God abandoned them. Why does God abandon? Why does God take the human race and look at it and and have to step aside and let them have what they're pursuing and let them go their own way just as a parent would a child. Right? Moms and dads, just as sometimes you have to do. You protect your child from ultimate destruction and harm, but you have to step back sometimes and let them experience what's out there in their disobedience. It says God abandoned them, he stepped back. It's because all sin begins by a failure to recognize the proper relationship between creator and creation. See, this is Genesis all over again. Satan's success was getting Adam to question his likeness with God. You remember that? Galatians chapter 2 and 3. 
When Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, what, what was the lie? What did he tell them? You, Eve, 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 if you'll eat, you can be like God. Truth was, they were already like God. They were in his perfect likeness and image. All satisfaction, all pleasure, all joy in life, everything that satiates me as a human being comes out of that one thing, that one reality, that I am in the likeness of God. All sin comes from a distortion of that one thing, the innocence that you and I possess of being like God through Christ. So, starting in verse 29, he gives us a rather long list. Now go back, verse 27, and the men, instead of having normal relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking to let them do the things that they've never done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they despise disobey their parents they refuse to understand they break their promises they're heartless they have no mercy they know that God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die yet they do them anyway worse yet they encourage others also hey regarding homosexuality homosexuality in verse 26 he simply says it's not natural in verse 27, he says it's not normal sex. It's beneath what God created. It ultimately will not satiate you. Only one thing will. A person who's transgender, who changes gender to find themselves and to, to, they're seeking a place of, 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 of not just pleasure, but of being, of I am I'm comfortable in who I am. This is me. Even that, that change, that transition of gender will not satisfy the soul. Only one thing will. Knowing who you are in the Creator. Receiving His embrace and walking with Him in His love and His grace. And when you're in the Savior's embrace and you understand from Genesis to Romans that we are in His very likeness, everything else proceeds out of that, even sexual desire. Sexual desire is pleasing at its highest when it's in concert with knowing who I am in Jesus Christ, knowing who God made me and how I'm redeemed to my innocence in Him. Anything out of that is unnatural. It's beneath God's best for you. So lest you criticize, lest you point your bony little finger at the homosexual and, and sort of uh, categorize and separate out their sin as somehow a really bad, evil sin, did you notice what's in the list? Wow! 
I mean, verse 29, every kind of wickedness, sin, and then outside of wickedness and sin, he starts listing a bunch of them. Greed, hate, quarreling, being a gossip. How many of you gossiped this week? God's going to judge you. God's going to... How, how many of you... How many of you were disobedient to your parents this week? How many of you broke a promise? Anybody break a promise over the last 30 days? You better look out for the fire of God's going to take you out. (laughs) Or is it that God in his love pursues me even in the midst of my disobedience? And he jealously, uh, uh, jealously, is that the word? You get the point. Reaches into my life to go after that thing that's displeasing. Why is it displeasing to him? Because it's beneath his best. It robs and it steals and it kills and it destroys. Keeps me from having his best. He's not upset just because he made a list and I don't obey it. And Oh man, I told you not to do that. He's concerned about those things that would take us out, that would ruin our life or cause us to live a substandard life beneath what he's ordained for us. And he says in verse 32, it's known in your conscience, it's known in the universe that those who do such things deserve to die. All right, let's go. Make up our placard, right? Get it on a post. And let's go marching outside of the Planned Parenthood. God hates murderers. God's going to send you to hell for taking the life of your baby. Or let's go, let's go down. Let's make out our placards, get them on a post, so we can lift them high above the crowd, okay? And let's go down to the next gay pride, gay, gay pride parade. Let's march. God hates fags. Romans 1, God's going to judge you and send you to hell. Now, if you're going to do that, here's, here's the next placard you need to make up, all right? Get, get your marking pen, get your marker out. Get a great big sign for this one, all right? Because this one, all of you do. Put it on a pole. Let's, let's march around the church sanctuary. Maybe we can incorporate it into worship. God hates gossips. We'll put under that. Disobedient to parents. God hates disobedience to parents. You're going to go to hell. Why don't we do it for those things? But we'll single out the one that culturally right now is the hot button. When all of them cause us to live below a standard of God's love and grace and his best for our life. Do you see that there might just be a different definition to the anger of God than just this punitive, wrathful God who desires to take you out and judge you for your sin? Dear ones, listen. If I could have your attention, I want to say something. After spending the most intense week of studying and preparing for this after calling a Hebrew and Greek scholar after counseling with a number of men of God one that's had a church of 14,000 people 
This is something many wouldn't say or admit. But I'm here to announce, I'm a grace guy. And this text is difficult. And I'm not sure how it all fits. But I know one thing. My God is a God of love. And if I'm going to err, I'm going to err to the side of grace. I didn't say there isn't any sin. I didn't say we don't need to repent. I didn't say we don't need forgiveness. I've never taught that we don't need to personally accept Jesus or that everybody is going to be saved. To the contrary, Paul makes it clear in this chapter that there is a universal guilt pre-Christ and that this universal state of sinfulness that we find in verses 18 through 32 is a result of if you partake of that, you'll be like God. Come on. Knowing good from evil, then you are going to live below what God has ordained for you. You're going to deal with sin in a way that you cannot resolve it. But on the other hand, if you receive the good news, there is a universal resolution. Listen, and I'll even go as far as to use the word inclusion. I know it's a hot button today, but listen to me. Universal inclusion. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Do I believe that there's still a personal responsibility that each individual has to intentionally believe and receive Christ? Yes. Do I believe and should we teach as a church that if you don't intentionally, personally believe on Christ and receive that gift of what he did, that there is a judgment for sin and there is a place of eternal separation. Yes, that is what the Bible teaches. But we need to be careful how we read these difficult passages and interpret them. And we need to be careful what our gospel contains and how we're preaching it. Because the message of the gospel is about the success of the cross, not the damnation of God for all those who have not received him and are going to go to hell. Judgment is self-activated. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. Rather than God personally standing there watching for your failure so that he can be punitive and judge you. He put a law in the earth called sowing and reaping. And he said, if you are going to sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will of the Spirit reap life and life everlasting. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> now watch this. You who point the finger, that bony little finger of judgment against sins that people have, it sort of brings you a pleasure. 
it, it, it sort of lights you up. You, you, you get, a, you get a, a fulfillment from pointing that finger and finding and pointing out people's sins. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Look at verse 1. You may think you can condemn such people. He's talking about the list. But you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and they should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing such things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Verse 4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Not turn from your sin and God will be kind. That's been the American gospel. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Listen, listen carefully. In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Now, if that's God's want, if that's what God wills, that nobody would be destroyed, shouldn't we chime in with God? Shouldn't our theological position be in keeping with the God of love and the God who clearly states in 2 Peter, I don't want anybody to be destroyed. Shouldn't we line up with that? rather than getting pleasure out of them getting their due. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Watch this. He brings Paul into it. I love this. I love these, I love these church fathers. I love these, ap, uh, these apostles and they, the way they dealt with these difficult concepts. Watch this. Verse 15. And remember, our Lord's patient gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom of God that God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different. Do you know that was in the Bible? These guys went back and forth with this stuff. They, They had to come to the table. They had to think, they had to to pray, they had to get the mind of God on what they were going to put in their letters, how they were going to instruct Christians. And I submit to you that some may have even taken the position that I've taken before you. I don't know how it all fits. I'm not sure, but I'm a grace guy. God will reveal it to me. The mirror translation of Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 says, Do not underestimate God's kindness, 
the wealth of his benevolence and his resolute refusal to let go of us in his passionate passion to shepherd everyone into a radical mind shift. End quote. <laughs> God is patient. Can you say amen? amen? God's passionate. Over what? You. That you would come to know him. That you would come to understand this tremendous gift of grace and love that he offers through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not sure about everything I read, but I'm sure about this. Calvary worked. Calvary worked. There was a hill called Mount Calvary. And I believe that whatever the cost, when time has surrendered and this earth is no more, I'll still cling to the old rugged cross. I know that in this life there's a lot of mysteries and someday they'll all come to an end. But faith is going to conquer, Rick, the darkness and death. And it will lead us to our friend, Jesus. I don't understand it all on earth, but I'm holding on to Calvary. I'm holding on to Jesus. This is an absolute. He died for my sin. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I believe that the Christ who was slain on the cross, he has the power to still change lives today. He changed me completely. And that is why a new life, it's mine. I found it. And that's why by the cross, I'm going to stand.
was slain on the cross has the power 